Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, he first met Mark Marin when they were matched to work together on Air America. Together they went on to create WTF with Mark Marin and have made podcast history. Welcome Brendan McDonald. Okay. Hey everyone, my guest today is Brendan McDonald. Brendan is the co-creator and executive producer of the podcast WTF with Mark Marin. Formerly, Brendan was a senior producer at MSNBC, working on shows such as All In with Chris Hayes, for which he won an Emmy Award, and Countdown with Keith Olbermann. He is a radio veteran, having produced shows for Rosie O'Donnell, Pete Dominic, Ron Silver, and Randy Rhodes. He is the co-author of Waiting for the Punch, Words to Live By from the WTF podcast. He is a Queens boy who now resides in Brooklyn with his wife and son. Welcome, Brendan McDonald, to the podcast. Hi, thank you. I'm, I'm sitting here trying to, you know, not allow blushing to happen over a microphone because I get very uncomfortable uh, hearing things that I've done said back to me. It's just a weird thing to me. I totally understand. <laughs> and not only that, this is a small portion of things. Some people feel like they're hearing their obituary when they hear their bio read. Yeah, or I think I, I always feel like it's funny because the things that I've done uh, are real accomplishments. I don't want to downplay them. But when I hear them read back, I think, oh, this sounds uh, self-aggrandizing. It doesn't like, you know, I know other people that have done these jobs. If they were here, they would be I would be embarrassed, you know, like. <laughs> And but they're real. They're real things. Like yeah. I have an Emmy. It's sitting yeah. at home. Like, but I still get embarrassed when I hear it said to me. Yeah. Well, I think that humility that you're describing is what makes you so likable. I always think that I was just an overly sensitive kid. Like my mother would always say that to me, like in a good way. She'd be like, if I like, like I would be the one who, if my parents were having an argument or something, and one of them said something to me about like, well, dad doesn't want this, or mom thinks blah blah blah, and I'd be like, well, maybe that's because she's, you know, feeling sad about this thing that happened two days ago, and they'd be like, oh yeah, you're probably right, you know. And so, 
uh, I think that I've just kind of always been in tune with other people's emotions, and it probably has uh, helped draw a direct line to working with Mark Marin because he is so, uh, you know, dependent on a relationship with with whomever he's talking to and making a connection. And I think I probably noticed that in him immediately and it was part of why I liked the work we did together. But to that end, because I found, you know, full disclosure, listeners, I've had coffee in a restaurant with my guest. So this is not <laughs> our first time having a conversation. Um, we met through Mark Marin's previous comedy manager, right. actually, uh, introduced us when I started my podcast. I was really flattered because she was listening to it for seven months at the time. And the fact that she thought uh, we should meet made me feel like I was doing a good job. Or maybe she was like, whoa, you need to meet Brendan. But I think it came from a place of a compliment that she thought we would like each other. But I felt like in our hanging out at Court Street Grocers in Brooklyn, that you're a great question asker also. And you have been behind the scenes a lot in your career that I've You've won accolades for being behind the scene and making, you know, from Chris Hayes to Mark Marin look really good in terms of the finished product that gets put out in the world. So obviously you have this ability to see talent and help it shine. But were you ever interested in being the person on that side of the microphone asking the questions? No, no not in a, in terms of a, a microphone. Um or, you know, from a radio construct or a, a broadcasting construct. I, I, when I was a kid, I come I come from a, a family that was, you know, uh, very devoted to the arts. Uh, every everyone in the family had some kind of uh, theatrical leaning. Um, no one ever did it professionally, but you know, I, my, my, both of my parents were, you know, met doing theater in in college and. Um, they continued to do theater with, um, with, with, I guess you would call them community theater groups, but in Queens, you know, uh, um, it, it wasn't like, a, you know, a, a road traveling, uh, group. It was just, um, they weren't circus folk. Right, they right, were, right. They were, they, they were, were living in your home. I think they called them the, 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 the group that they were, did shows with was called the troopers. And that was how, when I was a kid, that was all I knew them as. It was like, oh, they're doing a show with the troopers, right? And you would go. I, yeah, I don't actually ever remember. I think I was too young, okay. and I did not go. I would go, and they'd be um, uh, uh, rehearsing and building sets and stuff. And I always thought it was very seemed very cool, very interesting. Um, but I uh, then also knew, like, well, that's that's a thing that they love. I should understand more about that. Or, or I don't even know if it was that conscious. I just we we would watch Broadway shows that were on like PBS, things like that. I, you know, uh, uh, we had a lot of soundtracks and. Uh, I just liked big, grand theatricality and, and uh, always did and always wanted at any stage of my schooling to be doing, you know, plays or, uh, you know, if there was even if you were in in first or second grade and they were doing like, we're going to read Peter Pan, I'd be like, well, I'll be Peter Pan. You know, I always wanted to be probably like the biggest role because it was going to be the one that did the most stuff. And yeah. I just wanted to do the most well, stuff. Yeah. And uh, I did that all, like I said, all through schooling. I did it into high school, uh, was always getting parts in high school plays that were the like plum comedy roles in the standard 
high school musical production. Like you could probably guess any musical and guess the part that I either played or would have played so were if you we snoopy? did that. Uh, we did not do Charlie Brown, okay. but like, uh, all right, so so Brigadoon. Okay. Uh, the 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 friend jeff right he's like the the comic sure. character or oklahoma take a guess yeah the uh, peddler right Ollie. right did uh, you do fiddler i did not do fiddler but did uh uh hello dolly and was barnaby now, the reason why i'm lingering on this is because you know i went to a small high school in upstate new york um so you left queens left queens yeah it was when i was about 11 why did you and, guys move then uh we had lived uh uh, we, have, we had family upstate and uh, we had lived in a like weekend summer home up there throughout my whole life. And it was just getting to a point where like my family wanted us to slow down. Um, you know, we were, you know, tired of 1980s New York and just wanted Son some of Sam. quiet. Right. Well, we were well beyond that. I mean, I was born in 79. When was Son so, of Sam? 77. Okay. So I, my there was only... some new serial killer. <laughs> There was a Zodiac killer in the 80s that scared the living daylights out of me. Like, I I remember it so vividly on, like, the cover of the Daily News. There was, like, a Zodiac symbol with a gun in the middle of it, like, as as though it was a spinner. And it was like, who's next? And and my... (laughs) And, Hope not Brendan. Well, my my dad's birthday was coming up, and I was certain he was going to be shot and killed oh by the Zodiac gosh. killer. And I like thinking back to that. It's like the terrorism of like media onto a child a child's mind like that. Like no wonder my parents were like, "Get these kids the hell out of here." Uh, now there's nowhere to go. Right. Right now we're so like every everything is what you're describing. Yeah. Everything is a breaking news report on every major news network. Yeah, exactly. So it feels like they're about to announce the Zodiac killer. Yeah. But 24-7. Yeah, living so in all, an emergency. Yeah. Right. So so you had PTSD then. Exactly. And now it's like. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in this small town, and um, which I loved. I, I, I'm so glad I had that experience as well as a, a, a like urban environment experience. But I always remember after these shows, um, the people from the school community would come up to me afterwards and say, like, you were great. You know, it's like the thing you really want in doing that as a kid is just to have people tell you how good it was. But they would always say, like, you know, you should be on Saturday Night Live. and You're so funny and you you should do this for a living. And I I say this with full humility. I, I, I at the time as a. 15, 16, 17-year-old, when that would be said to me, I would say, these people don't know. Like, they they don't know how hard that is. Right. And they don't, like, I, I don't know exactly where that came from in, in me, but I just knew it was not a realistic dream for me to have as Because a, it was so hard, or you already understood what real gifts were. I think I uh, I think it was more that I understood the per- percentages and proportionality of the jobs to the to the desire to have the job. You got it. You and, were a realist about it. You know, and you know what might have done it was specifically with Saturday Night Live. I re- I loved Saturday Night Live almost my whole life, which seems strange because a little child should not like Saturday Night Live. But I remember like seeing Eddie Murphy doing Gumby at like the earliest age. To maybe three, four yeah, years old. Yeah, me too. And my, my parents would stay up and watch Saturday Night Live at that time, like 83, 84. And I would always say, like, can you, th- we didn't have v- VCR yet. And I would say, can you tell me what was on the show 
that like was if there was Gumby or if there and I, my dad would sit down with me on Sundays and we he would tell me all the jokes and so I, like I can remember this primetime SNL special in uh, 1989 that was like the first 15 years of SNL celebrating like the first 15 years of SNL and they did all these clips it was like a treasure box I had opened I finally was getting to see all these things that had been talked about for so many years that I could not stay up late and watch um, and so I was obsessed with that show and I loved every, I, lo I loved uh, the order of it like each season broke down into such you know discernible parts and you could you know p put cast members along with their time frames and go oh and then he went off to make this movie and then she did this and I love that stuff and I had this SNL um uh uh season to season guide it was like a little pa a paperback it was big but it was like a paperback and I just wore the hell out of it it was all wrinkled and stuff because I'd always be thrown in my bag and I I think one of the things I obsessed over was how the the show was on my whole lifetime, uh, and so it just seemed the and it is now for people who yeah. are still being born, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I, but even back then, I was like, wow, there's there weren't that many people on it. Like I could, it's a small ensemble, right? Right. Even even with giant cast changes, like the entire cast wiped out, a new cast brought on year to year. Like eighty. 85 was a brand new cast and then by 86 they were all gone except for like Lovitz and so I I, I think that got into my head that it's like this is a, a very elite group of people and like I don't even think I can entertain that idea of being one of them it may maybe someday something like that could happen who the heck knows but I just it never sunk into me as having that as some type of aspirational goal I'm sort of fascinated by the people who knew those odds, just like you, but they didn't have the voice that sort of said, okay, I'm looking at the statistics here. I understand how special this is. There was something in them that despite that information or knowledge or the odds being the same for them, because some of them were the most talented people in the world and some of them aren't. Right. I think there's plenty of people that that know desperately it's a it's a crapshoot right. and they but there is a uh an inability of them to not take the the step and i i i could see myself being a type of person who had that like even with the 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 perspective i'm talking to you about um i can see a road in which i say oh well, i don't care i'm still going to go for it right i know plenty of people that have done it successfully and unsuccessfully and I admire all of them for doing it um, and what I think is the difference for me is that at that time like those formative years when people were saying to me you should do this and I had that pushback within myself the 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 louder voice was like there's so much out there to do yeah. right and I don't know what it all is I need to go find that stuff I didn't know it any anything in my life would have to do with radio or audio or now podcasting, which didn't exist when I was right. a kid. Um, I don't think did the phrase digital media. No, exist no. You, I mean, we were. I think I, when, you made that phrase. Up. When I was when I was getting uh, uh, when I was graduating high school was like the, that year, 2000 or 1997 uh, was when I graduated high school and was the first year I got on the Internet. Like so that it, that that's 
That's what, the moment. Right. That was the, the breaking point culturally where things shifted exactly. in that way. But nothing, I mean, so, you know, going to school, I think I had a vague notion that I was interested in journalism. Uh, you know, vague in the sense that, like, you, you understand it from movies or television. Yeah. You know, the, uh, you saw Network. I, you know what the real, this is honest to God, I wrote my college entry essay on the film The Paper, the Ron Howard movie. I will still, I have a, 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 a cadre of friends of mine who we all love that movie and we watch it over and over again. And it really is, I, having now worked in several newsrooms, uh, a hugely underrated movie about the, and I, obviously I have a bias toward it because I had a, a formative experience with it, but uh, it, it is just so wonderfully observed, the human interaction that goes into a job like that and how so much of it is just, you know, grinding it out. And I think that that has become like a hallmark in my life is I'm drawn to things where the achievement comes from just like thankless, busy work that you just have to do. You have to put in the time. You have to, you know, make sure that, you know, you're crossing all the T's and dotting the I's and then poof, something good happens from it. Like, I, if I look back on anything that I've done, it's always just because of, like, rigor and, uh, you know, an, a, a, an investment in the thing that I'm doing, an investment of time, an investment of emotion. And I just, like, I admire good, thorough work. What's been commonly understood and what I love about WTF and what I love about your partnership with Mark Marin is that he is very vocal. And when he talks about your show, he always says, my producer, right? Like he always in- right. includes your name in in the um, in the tribute or the yeah. conversation. And uh, however, in the world, it's, you know, it's WTF with Mark Marin, and you're not in the, you know, you're not the Ed McMahon to his Carson. Right. Um, was there ever a time where perhaps that was going to be the setup where you were more involved in the performance aspect of the show or was it always the way it is now? No, well, it was, it was that way. I I mean, I've always felt as a producer, uh, on radio that if I can contribute something, um, in the way that, you know, I'm thinking about it as a final product, I, I, I will do that. And so, um, you know, when we had a live radio show that we would do, um, was that at Air America? At Air America, which is where was, you guys met. That is where we met. Yeah, and um, it was a Match. dot com sort of thing. Pretty much. You... Yeah, we like showed <laughs> up, and, and it was like, okay, here's your show. You're with this guy. That that you know, get to work. So this is early days of Air America. It had not launched yet. Okay. Yeah, and we show up, and kind of everyone's looking around at each other. Oh gosh, what's this going to be like? You know. Um, but I I I took to Mark very quickly. Um, I why was, can you say why? Yeah. Sure, I was I was uh, impressed with his ability to do radio, having never done it before. Like I recognized a natural talent in him that I was excited about. Like that's a for I'm I was not a, a veteran producer by any stretch of the imagination, but I knew what I liked and I knew what I wanted to work on because I thought it was good. And I, you know, the to me like the high water marks were like you know at the different poles where like something like this American life was, sure. was, a, was still to me at, at the time and still was the greatest radio show ever created. And, uh, Howard Stern was, you know, to me was the, uh, uh, ultimate version of a kind of freewheeling, almost, uh, sense of reckless abandon, but clearly 
totally produced and controlled uh, at, that you could get in, in any form of media. That was what, I, you know, I always loved Stern. I always loved Gary, uh, uh, Howard's producer, as, as a um, career aspirational goal. I was like, I would love to do what that guy has done. And I've, I've since told him that. Like, you know, I said, you know, it's, I hope you don't take this, you know, the wrong way but like I, I always wanted to do what you do when when I grow up and he said oh I hope you've grown up like <laughs> I, I but I that must have been a great moment though it's nice to get to say thank you yes absolutely and I I but I thought at the time with Mark he could be like Howard Stern like I I said those words I was like this guy could be the next Howard you Stern. Saw it. and uh were you familiar with his comedy yes and I was I wouldn't say that I was a fan like not I was not a non-fan but I just didn't take to him like like my tastes at the time were probably like most people my age was like Chris Rock sure. and, and you know when we did the early episodes of the podcast we didn't really know what it was but we knew that we could do it right we knew we've got experience on the radio I was a huge podcast listener at the time right and um, now you knew how to use the technology that's you right and, the... and I and I knew what I didn't like about radio and about the constraints that were on us and all the things we were being told would not work that I knew would work. And I just wanted to do them and have the outlet to do it. And so uh, in those early days of doing the podcast, we'd record in a studio not unlike this. And beige. I was in the <laughs> <laughs> kind of beige velour. But also, like, I was sitting about as far away from Mark as, as I am from you, but with a giant console and so you were he'd, DJing he'd have a thing. guest next to him but I'd be there and I could chime in if I wanted to and and uh, I did you, know, you? would oh, you yeah. kind of converse uh just went like I said when I felt there was something that would assist the show right okay. and 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 so going back to your question is did I ever think of myself as a sidekick or Ed McMahon type or like or a partner a I mean partner. was there any it, idea about how to no it was I I was definitely a partner but it was a production partner. And so any contribution that I have, I, I always know to this day, like I need to be in, like I, my contribution needs to be benefiting the overall product. Right. There have been plenty of times where uh, we've done things, not not recently, but like back when we first started doing the podcast, there were times where like Mark would do a lot more things on the phone, um, not guests, but like call his dad, call his mom. And, you know, sometimes he'd call me up and we'd record things. And I w it was always the thing I would cut out. Well, let me ask you if you could, if you don't mind, um, open the curtain a little behind the scenes of how, I mean, the, the very short version, I'm sure everyone listening sort of knows that uh, uh, Mark and Brendan went off and, and made this thing called WTF. And, and slowly over time, it's become, you know... Uh, incredibly popular with more downloads than, you know, anything else on the planet. And people love it. And guests love to come on it. And and it's no secret that Obama went on the show. And mm -hmm. that really changed the level of recognition uh, to even people who didn't maybe listen Absolutely. to podcasts before. But, but so it's kind of a stunning, exciting, it's sort of like... You know, the rags to riches story of, of, of every other, every business has one. Sure. And this is kind of, um, although it wasn't rags, you guys both had figured out ways to pay your rent. Yes. Um, can you take us through a little bit of what, how you make this show and how does it work? And I know he's in a garage in California. Yeah. You are in a, in a 
brownstone, perhaps? It's in a, Brooklyn. Yeah, small townhouse. Small townhouse yeah. in Brooklyn. So you're not, you know, I don't know that people know you're not even in the same place at yeah, the same 3, time. Yeah, 3,000 miles apart, which is probably one of the keys to it working. The best marriages, yeah, right? Yeah. Like separate bedrooms or business partners across the country. Yeah. Have you guys ever had big fights? Uh no, I can't remember us ever having anything that lasted. Like, there was a long period of time where that the answer to that was, like, unequivocally no. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there have been times where, you know, mostly they happen over, like, texts. Like, you know, a, a, a something that come, that reads as, like, a demand and, like, a, you know, who the hell do you think you're talking to kind of thing that goes back and forth for five seconds. And now, then, which one is making the demand and who's saying who the hell are you talking to? I, I feel think like that's I inter- guess. I think that's inter- <laughs> Interchangeable, actually, okay. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've realized. Sorry, I'm peeking your. That's mic okay. There. I've realized that I. Uh, You're using your musical performance voice. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Barnaby. Yes. I, I have um, had to check myself with texts because I write very directly on them, and Mark has pointed out to me that sometimes. Uh, it, he reads them as though they all say at the end, you dick. Like, <laughs> and I, I'm right. not intending for right. that to happen. But then when he points that out, I read it and I'm like, yeah, I see how you can yeah, get that. The text you know? tone can yes. be misconstrued right. but, or not. It right. might be what you were feeling at but the time. But the, the interesting thing was that I, I, there was, there was one time I really like kind of blew up at him to the point where like, I got him on the phone and I was like, I will not do the thing that you're asking me to do. And it's the reason is like you have to deal with the consequences of wanting something and asking for it the first time. Like your actions have consequences. And I was like, really like dressing him down. And he was like, what's wrong? And I was like, I'm, I'm angry at what you're talking about here, what this is. And he was like, oh, just you seem really tense and wound up. And that is usually like. 180 degrees the other dynamic the, the dynamic between us is like right. I'm usually the one discerning what's wrong with him and that something's right. bothering him or whatnot and like that was a real like take a step back moment for me where I realized like oh I'm taking this thing that it has is very precious to me this relationship that he and I have as 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 friends and business partners and and coworkers and I am treating it the way that I would dump things on like a you know uh, uh, a terrible intern. You know, like a stress ball, yeah, right? Like, yeah. you know, he's banging, banging on that the, a thing to just grind out your stress. And I realized like, oh, I'm, I feel like because we, sometimes we have this distance that I can do that to him. You know, it's like this distant relationship. And uh, that was a adjustment then that I had to make like, okay, you know, I still, if I'm angry about something and that, you know, that has to be dealt with apart from right. my interaction with Mark. Well, that's marriage, right? Yeah, like, sure. It really is the same in a marriage. And it's funny because when you described yourself as a kid, when your parents would be fighting and that yeah. you were always the one who could kind of dissect the actual uh, science of what was going on in that fight. Right. Down to like, actually, I think maybe because it was mom a yeah. couple of days ago and she hasn't, she's still upset about that. Yeah. And so it sounds like you and Mark are both able to. Usually that's your role, and now it sounds like sometimes he's doing yeah. that for you too. Well, he's—I mean—he's tremendously perceptive with that stuff, uh, and always has been. Like I think that's one of the things I, I liked about him immediately is that he could just size up a person, and you know, he like it almost seemed like a parlor trick at first that he would say like, oh, "That person seems like a depressive," and I'd be like, "Yeah, she is." You know, like right. knowing he just having that intuition, and I—I I feel like it helps our 
work relationship that we can say a lot of things now without having to go through the full explanations. Like we both have tremendous like personal, interpersonal shorthand with each other. And so, you know, to your question of like, well, how does it work? Right. Literally sort of what's the process? A lot of it is because of that kind of simpatico relationship that we have. There's a there's um, so much unspoken between us that things just get done uh, because we instinctually know what the other one is supplying. So he can send me a, a file after he does the interview and say, you know, maybe five things about it. It was good because X, Y, and Z. So right and afterwards, while it's fresh for him, yeah. he'll, he'll send you a few notes along yeah, with Yeah, usually the, a text or we have a quick phone conversation or something. And I can just tell from his tone and how he's reacted to it, basically how much work I'm going to then be putting into the edit, you know. And, right. But he trusts me. Uh, so he doesn't you know, listen to it again after you never, edit it. And never. that's never been true from the beginning. That's right. sort of how it worked. He, yeah, he does. I mean, unless I say to him, like, you have to go back and listen. This is amazing. And you might not have even caught it that it happened. But he'll virtually never listen to the show. Do you or Mark have any conversation before the guest shows up actually literally at the garage? Is there a pre-interview yeah, it, of some kind? Uh, well, there's no pre-interview with the guest, but there's usually a conversation or you know some type of exchange between Mark and myself. Uh, I would say I gen- tend to take his lead on it. Uh, I uh, one of the things that I've learned you know, very early on with him, it's like it's a mistake to overload him with information. He's better uh, when he can talk to someone from a kind of uh, inquisitive, resting, neutral position than if he were, you know, fully downloaded with their biography. So um, do you research the person and send him If he says info? to me, if he says to me, like, feeling nervous about, like, so-and-so coming over, I will try to find the kind of armor piercing bullets that he can use, you know, and yeah, that will require research, but then I'm not giving him like a research packet. Right. And you don't send him the questions. Right. Right. I will a lot of times, um, basically send him little tricks. Like, like he might not even know that I'm sending it as a note. Here's a perfect example was, uh, Terry Gross, who Mark interviewed at a live uh, at an event, event. of some yeah, kind, yeah. But we we aired it as an episode on the podcast, um, and th- we were going through you know her backstory and you know how she became the host of Fresh Air. And there's not a ton of public information about her. She did not give a lot of interviews, but um, I, it was notable that she had been married once before um, and when she was very young. And then there seemed in her biography to be about like a two-year gap from that marriage until moving to Philadelphia. And the two of us, we were sitting actually in his hotel room in New York because he did that interview here. We were sitting like talking about stuff and I was looking at, you know, news articles and interviews with Terry Gross. And we just like with laser focus, the both of us were like, what's those two years, you know, and that became everything for that interview. And if you go back and listen to that interview, he spends about 20 minutes just driving up to that point. No, And then when that point gets there, he doesn't say like, now I know you were married and then there's two years that I can't figure out what happened. He treats it like this thing that is being revealed to him at the same time that it's being revealed to everyone else. And um, I, I don't, 
say that say that thinking that he's being inauthentic with it. He just wants that conversation to come out in the most organic way possible. So he's not going to um, uh, allow the perception of a, a, a guided answer to override the guest's desire to just unburden themselves with this information. Interesting. Which, if he's just there to receive it, it's it's much easier for it to to come. Which is, I mean, sometimes you guys do. I mean, you do how many a week? Uh, well, it's it, it depends. We do two episodes a week, but some weeks he may do an interview a day for five days. If that's what everyone's schedule scheduling, needed, right, right, right. And and the interesting thing about you know that that idea of like withholding the information, you know, it's a ba- another reason why he, on very rare occasions, he'll read a book of of someone who's you know got a memoir out because right. he doesn't want to know the stories. Yeah, and have it's not as fun. Yeah, right, and so. Uh, there was this there's this great example of when he had David Spade on. Um, he uh, was talking to Spade about Farley and um the you know, it was just talking about like basically fun stuff about him and then leading up to Farley's death. And Mark said, Oh man, yeah, that's so sad. And that I'm I guess the funeral must have been tough. And, you know, Spade quite famously uh did not go to the funeral. And uh, what, I say quite famously because, I, like I said, I'm obsessed with SNL. Right. And I remember, but I remember at the time it was a big deal, and well, people, people following the story knew that. Yes, right. And they and and there was you know uh, uh, judgments put on it, and and um, you know there was there, it was a private moment for for everyone involved, but it played out publicly. And so Marks in the conversation with Spade, which has been, you know, now going on for over an hour, I think, they're at this point. And he says, well, the funeral must have been tough. And Spade goes, no, I didn't go. And he was like, oh, okay. Uh, and like, that was, you, were, you, you know, it was cool with you. And he was like, I actually became a big deal. And he talked to him about it. And I realized listening to it, like, wow, he's like, He's totally okay with sharing this stuff because he feels there's no judgment was, on it and from Mark. And he wasn't Mark. set up. Right. And I, so after that, I said to Mark, I was like, oh, that was pretty smart what you did with him about, um, you know, Farley's funeral, and, you know, just asking if he went. He was like, oh, yeah, I didn't know. So I edit with my producer, but I'm, I edit them with him. Yeah. I find editing, there are days where I just don't want to do it. Do you, I find it very hard. Mm. Um a, I'm a perfectionist. B, I want it to seem so not edited, right. which takes a lot longer. Um, and I care so much about every guest. And I want, I'm I'm there only, to, I appreciate them coming on. And I, you know, we talked before about gotcha. Like there's nothing about it. I want them to hear it and want to share it with everyone in their family. Right, Forget right, their fans. Right. Like I want people in their family to feel like they're getting to know them better too. Yeah. Um, but it's hard. It's really hard work and it takes a kind of focus and concentration. I find it exhausting. Um, do you still love it? Yeah. And I feel that way, exactly what you're talking about. I feel that way about writing. When I've had to write, I enjoy it. And I, as a, as I like, as a fan of the written word, I am. (laughs) As a fan of reading. Yes. And writing. I, I, uh, I admire it and I get it's it's very similar to the acting thing where I'm like I'm not in the league of the people who do this great and I get stressed out when I have to do it and I I avoid it I procrastinate but the editing is uh, therapeutic to me it's something that I do 
second nature at this point. So. And you get to hear these amazing stories. That's but, that's the other thing. Right. Sometimes it's exciting, right? Like it, it's like I have not I'm not there for the interview when he does it. So I if he tells me like this was awesome, like I want to edit that moment. Yeah, right. So other than so when Obama was there, I know I know when he came on your show, you actually were in California. Yeah, yeah. But could you hear the conversation yeah. while they were doing it? Yeah, that that's one of the that, that's a one of the rare occasion. occasions where where it's been set up so that other people could hear it or other people were in, like We've never done it like that where we had to run cables like outside of the garage. Who was listening aside from you? five people from the White House. And why were they listening? Um, Well, there was one White House archivist who, you know, was listening and recording on their independent uh, machines. And that's good. um, There was backup. Yeah. Well, we we had it backed up three ways inside the garage. I had two backup recorders running that were that were uh, uh, battery operated. Watergate in there. Yes, exactly. Those there were not 18 missing minutes of tape. We had it all. I hope Um, not. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, there were uh, his senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett, was listening. And, you know, I I think they're just making sure they know exactly what the president said when he spoke for an hour to some guy in his garage. Yeah. And did they uh, – was there any agreement that they could have some creative input no. after? Nothing Zero. like that. Yeah. And did they have any – No. 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 It was it – So was... you didn't ha- – they didn't vet it before you aired it. Nope. Didn't vet it before we aired it. Didn't vet it prior. Didn't They didn't tell us what we had to do- ask. They didn't say, you know, this is off limits. This, this is what we're pushing. I mean it was pretty explicit in the entire agreement from our end and from theirs. Like – He's coming to do WTF. Right. That's it. Like yeah. that. If it wasn't that, they wouldn't have been doing it. Right. They could get any schmo that you know is wearing a plaid shirt to sit across <laughs> from him and talk to him. They they want to do it in the context yeah. of what this show. There is. were fans in his staff, and they thought this would. Why yeah. do you think? I mean, obviously, at some point, Obama's going to write. He's a great writer, mm-hmm. actually. Speaking of writing, and, yeah. and I thought his memoir was kind of amazing. And yeah. I'm sure there will be a post-presidential, I mean, I'm not sure. I could imagine him writing about his experience. And um, why do you think he wanted to do that? To do the show? Yeah. I'm just curious. Do you have a sense of that? I do. Um, I mean, I'm I'm going on what I I was told by the staff and what I know was their overall overarching uh, media strategy at the time. Um, and so there's not like, why did he personally want to do right. it? Right. Why did his people think this would be great for him? Their their decision making in terms of new media was obviously kind of far reaching in, in terms of trying to deliver the message of a chief executive in ways that were not boxed in by, um, you know, a news construct, uh, traditional Washington beltway setup of how to disseminate news, you know. The the rules of like you should do the sit down with sixty minutes and meet the press right. and all this, there, those are institutional for a reason. But uh, I believe they accurately identified the fact that people are getting their news and information from lots of different places. They're tuning out certain traditional media platforms and living almost exclusively through kind of aggregated uh where r- remind me because i don't remember exactly what year where was he in his term uh, it was 2015 it was actually 2014 when we first started talking to so the not White running House. for re-election no right no this was gen this was really like we need to keep people engaged i think it was it happened you know it, very 
specifically because he was not running anymore. You know, it's it's harder to get your message out as a president when you don't have a campaign on the horizon. So um, so so that's their over was their overall strategy. And I know that uh, his advisor, uh, Shayla Murray, who is the one who wound up shepherding the interview to fruition, uh, she uh, had heard her. I think it was her brother and father were both fans of the show and said, you should listen to the show. And she had heard Mark's interview with Will Ferrell mm-hmm. and said, like, this is amazing because I th- thought I knew this guy from being a you know funny person. But here's this here's him talking like a real guy. And this is a, a totally humanizing. So, I, you know, I think it's a good outlet for for the president. And, um, you know, I don't think their desire was to do like a fluffy, gauzy interview. I think the desire was let him talk about the things he normally talks about, but have him do it from the perspective of like a guy, the guy who's asking him the questions is going to ask what a lot of people out there listening will want to ask themselves, you know? So, um, by their accounting, it was very successful, like, you know, in terms of the message they wanted to deliver. And, you know, I, we, would absolutely say the same, you know, we, we found not just successful for ourselves as a, show and as a business and as a uh, uh, kind of inflection point in the medium, it was successful from our vantage point, much like the Terry Gross interview, knowing like, okay, this thing we built, like it can be used to house this message or this idea, right? The idea that a sitting president wants to come in and do this. uh, Well, the Terry one is so meta, yeah. Do you know what? I also wanted to ask you about Waiting for the Punch, the book that you and Mark have coming out. What was the beginning of that conversation? What if we did an oral history? But like, it's not an oral history of the show. It's like an oral history of life. And that was actually like our joke title of the book at first when we when we went and then pitched it back to publicists, uh, publishers was uh, Life and Oral History. And the idea would be take, you know, universal topics, childhood um, parenting, relationships, sexuality, mental illness, um, the connective tissue between all of us humans. Exactly. And these are, and every one of those is a chapter and every one of them takes you through an arc from like, okay, the childhood chapter is going to go from like small child earliest memories to just left my house to go to college for the first time. And we'll use hundreds of people to tell that story and and do that throughout the whole book. So when you're done, you have this, you know, amazingly unified discussion about life and experience, but it's with, you know, hundreds of the most so it's notable like the people. biography of hundreds of people in what, right? It's yeah. like a biography made up of all of yeah, these Yeah, it's people. like they're like a Voltron of humanity, right? Like we just Did you think stuck about them all together. That, the Voltron of humanity. <laughs> I, uh, there, there is a certain niche audience that would probably buy that. We're yeah. going to test it. We'll yeah. do marketing research. Um, I'm so grateful to have had you here today. You know, when when you agreed to come on, and I know you don't do a lot of these, um, I was really honored. And we talked earlier about those moments when you were able to say to Howard Stern's producer, Gary, yeah. um, I'm not going to cry because, you know, I don't need to cry. But I want to really say thank you to you because your show and how you do it and the quality and the integrity and the, um, the way you guys tell stories made me so happy as a listener for so long and has been such a true and tremendous inspiration for me 
And it's what I work toward every day to try to get anywhere near the quality of what you guys are doing and um, the uh, respect for humanity that you show in a world right now that can be really ugly. Yeah. And um, so I just wanted to say on my year anniversary of my show, uh, to have you here is kind of extraordinary. And I really want to say thank you to you. Oh, I appreciate it. It's tremendously flattering. And I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative that you said it. And um, uh, congratulations, thank by you. the way. Thank you. Um, and uh, I, I, I also just feel like um, it's, we are indebted, Mark and I are indebted to so many people for, you know, basically, uh, well, I used to say the show succeeded because of the kindness of friends and strangers. Like mm -hmm. we had people who were our friends and boosters who who got it out there. And but there were also just people like yourself who wound up liking it yeah. and, you know, became evangelists of it. And I think you can probably relate to the fact that like it, it just feels good when something you believe in so strongly yeah. connects with people. Yeah. And um, and so it's again, I'm in, extremely appreciative that you feel that way about the show I do. and I and uh, and also honored that you acknowledge uh, my work on it because I work very hard to not keep not put that in the <laughs> forefront. I understand. And that. so uh, it's it's not I'm. You know, I, I don't feel like I've been found out or discovered <laughs> like when somebody says that to me. I do appreciate it. So. Well, I really appreciate you. And thank, thank you. you for coming on Little Known Facts. It's been wonderful. Yeah, thank you. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.